Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Rod Rosenstein okayed the final FISA warrant. I mean, that, that FISA warrant to spy on Carter Page was re-upped three times, and the final one was, was, was given the green light by Rod Rosenstein. Bruce Orr's wife was working for the opposition. Glenn Simpson was certainly working for the opposition. And Michael Zussman, the lawyer, Perkins Coie, was the key lawyer for the Democrat National Committee and the Clinton campaign. And yet, the document that was put together, this dossier, was what was used to go to the secret court to get a warrant to go spy on the other campaign. Well, that yeah, is I... never supposed to happen in this country, but it did. You know, the same folks that prejudged Hillary Clinton's innocence, prejudged Donald Trump's guilt and the same names are the same folks whose conduct is at issue with respect to how evidence was presented or not presented to the FISA court. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. In this hour, we are going to be speaking to Professor Warren Treadgold. He's a St. Louis University professor. He has a new book out, The University We Need, Reforming American Higher Education. That's a super important interview for us because, as we've seen, we have more conservative professors retiring than are being hired, and this is a yearly occurrence. And so with that comes a continued march towards totalitarianism and the refusal to acknowledge that more than one viewpoint exists. So we're going to be speaking with the professor about his book and about what can be done to reverse this trend. Um, it, it really means that even though we greatly respect higher education and, and as parents and as Americans, we want to see as many people as possible who are, you know, that's their calling to get that higher education, to go and get it because it benefits our country. But if a higher educational advanced degree, if, if going for that loses its intrinsic value due to the fact that the majority of it is, is kind of trending towards indoctrination and that these young adults are coming out with these worthless, you know, it's, it's a piece of paper that doesn't get them anywhere. A degree in gender studies, African-American studies. I don't know anybody who has a degree in that who's gainfully employed and really moving up a progressive ladder for their profession. Now, people who have degrees in science, biology, chemistry, physics, people who have degrees in mathematics, people who have degrees in professional pursuits like business, M people who have MBAs, they, they seem to be doing very well. People who get law degrees, who get medical degrees, who get degrees in the veterinary medical field, they also do very well. I, I, but it, there's a continuation. It's like, you know, you can almost guarantee that if a person says, oh, you know, I went to college, but I also work at Starbucks. If you ask them what they got their degree in, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, women's studies. That's a shame because that degree costs the same amount of money, if not more, than the degree the per for the person who went for engineering. And engineering graduates step out into jobs paying around fifty, sixty, and $70,000. That's the range. They start off making that big money because they're in demand. Number one. And number two, they have a marketable skill that doesn't go away. A degree in engineering doesn't, it doesn't become obsolete. And they get to work for these big companies that have benefits. And really, it's, it's a great start out in life. And it's not the only thing that matters, obviously. The main goal for us here at, at uh, American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk is that we want to get people to see that 
it's life in Christ that is the ultimate benefit. But we also have to eat and pay rent or mortgages and, you know, get clothes on our backs and shoes and things like that. And the easiest way to do that is to put the hard work in first. And if you're not going into a trade so you can become a plumber, electrician, you know, carpentry, construction, um, which are all admirable professions and those people do very well. Then if you're going for a degree in higher education, you know, a degree in, in English literature, if you're going to teach English literature, fantastic. But if you're just getting a degree in English literature and you don't have any plans for what to do with it afterwards, if you're not going into the, the profession, how does that work out for you? And it's our job as parents to tell people that. Um, and so now I want to pivot over to immigration. And I talked about this a little bit in hour one. This is classic Claire McCaskill. She always becomes much more conservative and much more concerned about conservative issues when it's election season. And we have extended an invitation for her to come on here so we can talk about this. So it's, this isn't for a lack of trying to, to have her come on this program. Here she is at the Senate, and she's grandstanding on illegal immigration. And why, you might ask? Because this is an issue that moves voters and she wants people to think that she's on the right side of it. When in reality, I'm going to unpack it for you once we listen to this. She's part of the problem here. She's part of the reason why we can't get these people arrested and why we don't have the bed space. It's number four. I just got to tell you, uh, our country has watched, have front row seat, where we have detained a lot of people children even, that are not a threat to our country. I don't think most people in my state would understand why prioritizing suspected terrorists has not happened. To me, the most important job we have is to be deporting criminals that are violating our laws and hurting people, making sure we arrest the criminals that are in this country illegally that are violating the law, and detaining people who are suspected terrorists. And I would like, uh, Secretary Nielsen, for you to report back to this committee how you intend on getting all these suspected terrorists detained as quickly as possible. So here's, here's the problem with what she's saying. As a senator, she advocates for not sealing the southern border. So if you want to have fewer people who are crossing illegally and taking up bed space, then you seal the southern border. Once you seal the southern border, you implement E-Verify. That could be done at the same time. Once E-Verify is 100% implemented, meaning it's the law of the land and it's enforced, then you have fewer people here who can find work, and so they self-deport. Now you have much more bed space, and instead of having new bed spaces created for family units, you can detain those 2,500 terrorists. In fact, if, if it were me, and I don't, I have no idea how this works because every time someone tries to do something common sense, every time the president says, I'm going to take this common sense measure on immigration, some wacky court will say, you can't do that. You can't, you don't have the power to do that. We know you're the president, but we're the courts. We're the appellate courts, not even the Supreme Court. We're the appellate courts. I would say everyone who's in a detention facility is immediately offered permanent jail time or deportation. So you have, you're reconnected with your family unit as it's called, and you are instantly taken back to your home country. And if you return again, it's jail time and your child will be deported back to home country. 
And then whatever, however many of those you have to execute to empty up the bed space to detain either for deportation or for criminal proceedings, those who are suspected terrorists. You should be able to clear 2,500 beds out for that in no time. Just like that. Boom. Done. What next? But instead, we have Claire McCaskill grandstanding and sitting around sounding. She, oh, didn't she just sound so logical and sensible? You're like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Um, hmm. Yeah, you're right. Why are we detaining family units at the border? We're detaining them because there are literally there's a surge. Honduras has a surge that's going on. There's another group of people who are making a new caravan to get to the southern border of the United States. Because if it worked for those other caravans, why shouldn't it work for them? This is what we're talking about. People are honestly interested in getting here because they know once they're here, our laws are so lax. There's just, you know, welcome on in. You know, we just bought a new sofa. Come and try it out. We can't kick you out of the house, so we might as well have you come in and, you know, how many of you are there? I got to make for dinner. You know, I got to I got to prepare dinner. That's what we're doing right now. And and understand that this it has so little to do with the race of the people. I would feel the same if the majority of the people surging our border were from Haiti or some Car- Caribbean country. I would feel the same if they were Europeans. It's it's not about their country of origin. It's that we don't have people to take care of the people who are coming here. So they're going on our social services and it's straining our budgets. So there are some people who are trying to do something over in the house. Republican leader McCarthy filed a bill called build the wall. It's number one. The name of this bill is build the wall, enforce the law. So it fully funds the wall at 25 billion, but it even does more, you know, Kate's law, which we passed is a part of this stop sanctuary cities. It keeps children safe because it removes the MS-13 gang members. And it denounces this movement like in San Francisco that allows illegals to vote in our election. But I watched what McConnell just said today. He said we're going to have a vigorous fight over the wall in December. And watching what this Senate was able to do with Kavanaugh, I believe this gives them the opportunity and the time to get this done once and for all. Hmm. Wouldn't that be great? So what I'm annoyed with is that when the Democrats are in charge, they obviously don't want to do anything on immigration. When they have all three houses of government, they don't do anything on it because it's such a terrible issue for them because they've really put themselves in between a rock and a hard place. But Republicans don't have that problem. It may be, quote unquote, unpopular in the polls. And remember, the polls are whatever the pollster is making them out to be. And am I saying that all of these polling organizations are dishonest and corrupt? No. But I am saying that if I want to get a poll together about people who listen to this show and I want to find people who love this show or people who are going to say they've been listening for a long time or they're new listeners and it's fantastic, there are ways to craft the questions to get that. When the reality is I know that, I mean, I think I put on a fantastic show. But I also get email from people who tell me that they hate it and they criticize it. I don't get a lot of that email, but I do get some. I also get email from people who say, I'm never listening to your show. They never should have put you on. I get those. And some of the emails that I get is just just actually only been two where the person says at the bottom, it says in Christ. But above that is nothing like what a Christian would write. But I can tell you a competent pollster 
can get a number of people together. They can pull 1,300, you know, a, a decent number of people, and they could find enough of them to say anything you want to say about the show. Someone who hates the show could find a number of people to poll to find that no one likes the show. So the nature of polling is that if you keep going, you can get something along the lines of what you're looking for, unless you're just looking for something you know, absolutely ludicrous. But when it comes to liking or disliking something, it, the way you frame the question plays a lot of that. It, it plays into that role. So when we hear people saying to the Republican Party, the Republicans are unpopular on immigration, no. Actually, 64% of all Americans believe that the southern border should be sealed. 64%. And a significant plurality of Americans believe that if you are here in the country illegally, that you should be made to abide by the law. If you frame the question as such that, you know, do you want people who don't obey the law or do you want people who do obey the law? Should certain groups of people be able to evade the law while you are forced to obey it? You get an even higher percentage. Over 80% of people will say everyone should have to follow the law the same. And if you say it's about immigration, it'll drop a little bit. But if you say, you know, if you're in the country illegally and you should be able to stay here or should you be deported, most people will say the person should be deported. Now, if you start asking, because, well, what if you have children who are crying or what if you have a child who's sick or what if you have a child who needs a surgery here? Then the wishy-washy people will say, well, for that family, they should get to stay, but everyone else should get deported. And you know this is true because when you talk to the man in the street interviews, when you, when you talk to people individually yourself, only very, very wealthy people who have absolutely zero chance of interacting with illegal immigrants or being a victim of illegal immigrant crime are the ones who say, nope, it's not biblical. Everyone should get to stay. And hardcore activists left us. They're the ones, yeah. And when you call people on it, People who are Christians, people who vote for Democrats, they'll say, well, I don't really agree with Democrats' immigration policy, but I agree on their social policy, so I'm sticking with the Democrats. So it's more about ideology and being an identified member of a group, meaning being a Democrat as an identity, than it is agreeing with the policies that they espouse. And I've never met anyone who could explain to me why illegal immigration is the one area of the law where certain people shouldn't have to obey it and everyone else has to. No one can answer that. So the Republicans should get on the stick and make this happen. Who cares what the polls say? We'll be back with more right after this. Stay there. Are you still stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? Not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable. It's MediShare, the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your health care. MediShare. Call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Kevin Swice admits that reaching your secular friends with the gospel is difficult, but there are things we can do to be more effective. He and I have worked together at the International Society of Christian Apologetics, so I was excited to see many commentators like Ed Stetzer and Eric Metaxas quoting him. Kadun says we make a mistake when we ignore the trends and zeitgeist of the times, and we make grave mistakes when we try to stereotype people into this or that category. Sometimes the best starting point is to ask a question. When someone tells him that they don't believe in God, he asks, what God do you not believe in? He says that nine times out of ten, it is usually a God that we Christians don't believe in. He has three principles we should adopt so that we can be more effective in reaching our secular friends. First, we must engage. He says we should sit at the table where we have the attention of your secular friends. Connect with them by getting involved with Apple computers, with Congress, or with sports. We'll be more effective if we sit at the table where most decisions are made by government, culture, media, and education. Second, we must inquire. That means we need to turn the table to listening and asking good questions. The Bible admonishes us to let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. He tells of a student who told him that he did not believe in anything that is not physical. Khaldun asked him if his idea was physical. After all, not believing in anything that is non-physical is a non-physical idea. Third, we should edify. That means we should reach across the table and learn to love people redemptively. The gospel is ultimately about relationships, and we can demonstrate the truth of the gospel through love. These principles will help you be more effective in reaching your secular friends. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to have our next guest on the program. First time on the show. He is the author of The University We Need, Reforming American Higher Education. It's Professor Warren Treadgold, and he is a professor at St. Louis University, which is in my town. It's called SLU around here by us locals. Thank you, Professor, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So let's talk about this book. I read the the blurbs and the synopsis, and I was like, wow, very timely, very, very important. Why'd you write it? Well, I wrote it because things have gotten pretty bad in most American universities, and I don't just mean SLU, my own university. I mean all of them. It's uh, getting to be to the point where a Christian and a conservative is very much endangered if he's a faculty member and isn't very comfortable if he's a student either on most campuses. So what does that look like? What what does it, because it, I've seen the stories, you know, I'm aware of it, but like at SLU, because we went to SLU, we actually visited SLU earlier this year. Um, it was very much earlier in the year, like January, February, we did a tour. And as we were going around the campus, it was so gorgeous. Your your campus has really, over the time that we've lived in St. Louis for the past 20 years, the campus has not only grown in size, but the actual buildings themselves and the amenities have been renovated. And it's just every building is more beautiful than the next. It's a pretty good size campus, large student body. And you have a number of housing options that we just adored. But we noticed immediately upon entering freshman dorms, that there are a lot of like, this is your pronoun, put your pronouns on the door. There was a board all about, you know, you, 
don't call, mispronoun someone, that type of stuff. And we noticed that in the dorms immediately. And we saw some, you know, transgendered students on the campus walking around. And so these are these are all freedom issues, obviously. But there is a, an, an, a kind of culture on SLU's campus where if you don't buy into the misgendering, the, the p- different pronouns and all of that stuff, you're kind of setting yourself up for some disaster. Yes, I'm afraid it's all true. I've seen the campus change. I've been there 20 years as well. And certainly they've upgraded the campus in all sorts of ways. But uh, their idea of their mission is one that really a an Orthodox Catholic like myself is not comfortable with. And yet that's what they're teaching the students. And that's the way they're evaluating the faculty. Now, uh, it's a big thing for determining our salaries, whether you're contributing to the mission of the university. And the mission of the university is, well, all of this inclusiveness, diversity, which of course means that you exclude conservatives and conservatives aren't part of diversity, what you do is you uh, try to make people feel comfortable if they're transgendered, if they're uh, homosexual, if they're, well, I mean, you know the whole list. Uh, yeah, it's depressing because can, can you just talk to us from the professor's standpoint, how much of that is adding to the quality of the education at SLU or detracting from it? Well, essentially... And if you believe in all the latest left-wing dogma, you can say it in the classroom. If you don't, you're supposed to keep quiet. Mm. And that's pretty much the case for students, too, who really aren't, are, I think, afraid to, to speak their minds in the classroom if they don't say the things that they're expected to say. Now, of course, you can have the complete illusion of freedom if you believe all the dogma that, that uh the left-wing administration and and the left-wing ideology of the campus wants you to. But, look, I do want to make it very clear that SLU is no different from most campuses and, in fact, is better than some of them. This is a nationwide problem. It's not just SLU. Yeah, and and I want to echo that. One of the things that we noticed, in addition to the pronouns and all of that stuff, was that everyone that we encountered on the campus was very positive, very kind. In fact, the, one of the primary reasons why it didn't end up being a place that my daughter seriously considered was just simply the number of students there. She was looking for a smaller campus and a smaller student body size. And obviously, we live in the suburbs of St. Louis. And you know what, Professor? She just didn't want to be in the same. She wanted to move away. She was like, I have to at least move out of St. Louis. Come on, Mom. I've grown up here, but lived here my whole life. So that, those were two strikes against SLU. But we have another... A couple that we know and, and love dearly, their their child is going there and loving it. Just and I know people who've graduated from there. I don't, I don't think SLU is at the tippy top of you know kind of the social justice campuses, and you can still get a great education there. But it is concerning the things you outline in your book. Can you can you share a little bit of what you see as kind of a normative process going across universities across the country that are detracting from the educational value? Well, of course there are some things that aren't ideological that are detracting from educational value, too. And those are things like great inflation. Courses are getting easier and easier. And if you look for the easiest courses, and it's not hard to find them on most campuses, there's even a website that helps you find them called (laughs) ratemyprofessors.com. If 
you want a class in which you don't even have to go to the classes, in which you have almost no reading to do, in which you have almost no writing to do, it's easy to find one. And you can still get good grades for such things. And professors are encouraged, actually, to do that because they get good teaching ratings from their students who say, what a great class, it's so easy. And, of course, it's less, you know, it, it is less work for us, too, if we don't have to grade papers, if we don't have to, to ask students questions, if we just show up and maybe the classroom is half full, but that's not a problem for us either. And this is happening nationwide, no question about it. It's, uh, and it's a problem that has nothing to do with, with ideology. But as for discussing ideas, you can discuss whether you're soft left or hard left, but you can't really discuss the whole spectrum. You certainly can't discuss things from a Christian perspective in most universities, and it's pretty hard to discuss them from a Catholic perspective, even in a Catholic university like SLU. So is it, is, I know it's because some of the professors just don't want to hear it, but it's also the students. Even if a professor is open to hearing the viewpoints that you just outlined that are kind of not mainstream anymore, Christianity, uh, you know, fundamental Catholicism, um, and, and the entire right side of the political spectrum, isn't it the students who are kind of driving these protests and these kind of crazy, like, you can't speak on our campus, even if we're not forced to see you, you just can't even walk on our campus, that type of stuff? Well, of course, it is students, but it's not the majority of students. This is a small group of very vocal students. But uh, since the administration favors them, and it is at least afraid to oppose them, the majority of students, who I think don't really agree with this, are intimidated. And I don't know what the majority of students think. They're very passive. They... uh, don't feel like speaking out, that's for sure. But, you know, they could, say, they could say that I don't feel like speaking out. Most of my students have no idea that I'm a conservative. And hmm. every now and then I let slip that I'm a Catholic, which is acceptable. They might think <laughs> I'm a very liberal Catholic. <laughs> you, you, let them, you let a few people in on the fact that you're Catholic. <laughs> yes, well, I, mean, it, I do occasionally refer to it in class. I, I think I could get away with that. But being a conservative, I never say. So what's the answer? Because I, you know, I believe you when you say it's a small number of people who are very vocal and they're like, they're like the, the worst kid at the airport where the entire airport from one wing to the other can hear this kid screaming and kicking and that kid's making all the other kids look terrible. The, the kids who are just sitting with their little iPads doing nothing or quietly reading a book are getting a bad rap because of this one kid. It's kind of similar with these crazed activist kids on campus, but what's the answer? Well, I have myself been thinking about this for a long time. I don't think it does very much good for one person to speak up on these campuses because they're just a tiny minority and and, uh, it's really out of the picture that that, uh, they should help. You notice that the controversy is mostly about outside speakers. It's because there aren't any voices on the campus anymore who are conservative and Christian. And when, well, that's not right. Very liberal Christian speakers can speak at a place like St. Louis University. They might have trouble at some other places. The, so I don't 
I don't really know. I've suggested in my book that what we need is a new university, but we don't need it probably for people like your daughter who want a smaller college. There are several small colleges that are pretty good and are conservative and are Christian. It's, the big problem is that the flagship universities, the elitist universities, the, uh, the big state universities and the Ivy League and others like them are all uniformly left-wing and anti-Christian. And if we could just have one university that was in that class that was explicitly conservative and Christian, or I've suggested Christian and Orthodox Jewish, it would be an enormous help to the whole academic landscape nationwide. And that's one of the things I propose in my book. So do you see any opportunity for students themselves? Because I I believe the bulk of the students on campus are either kind of apolitical because they find college to be so overwhelming. They're not taking the easier classes. They're really working hard and they just want to get their degree. And so during their college years, they're not they're not as political. They just don't feel the need to be so. And then there's also kids there who are clearly right leaning. They may not be full blown Stacy on the right types, but they're definitely conservative you know, politically, maybe even socially, is it time for them to band together and have some protests and kind of show the other people what it looks like? Or is that an exercise in futility? I don't think it would work. There aren't enough of them. There isn't enough sympathy for them among the student body is at large, and the administration is against them. I just don't see they'd have to have some very specific cause and I can imagine if they chose it very carefully, it might do a little bit of good, but I wouldn't do very much good. It wouldn't change the overwhelming fact that administrations are very left-wing and very anti-Christian. Faculties are, by and large, left-wing and anti-Christian. And the people who aren't as left-wing and aren't as anti-Christian are passive and have learned that you just get in trouble if you speak. Hmm. So I do, I do agree with that. If you go to, uh, campus reform, they have a website where they, they just catalog this and it's a constant all the time type of a situation. Um, so what's the answer for parents? Cause I, I also think there's some room for people who are alumni who are conservative to say, you know what, I'm not going to give you any more money. Would that impact it at all? Oh, I think it should happen. And one of the reasons why I think a new conservative university could succeed is it would give people a place to give their money, whereas now they either don't give money to higher education at all or they're giving money to mostly institutions that they that are selling a message that they absolutely don't approve of. And I'm sorry that so many of them still do. Of course, the really big donors get the idea that what they want their uh, names to be on is a building at Harvard or something like that, and they don't really care what's taught inside it, it seems, or they haven't thought about it. That's probably more uh, what they what really is what's on their minds. They, they just don't think about that. And, and slowly they're learning that these are universities that really regard America as a terribly oppressive place. And part of the reason that they're finding this out is that 
this now has some traction in the National Democratic Party, that America is an oppressive place, you know, we're all racist, we're all homophobes, uh, we're <laughs> all transgenderphobes, we're, uh, we're all really bad people, and uh, that's what the university's been teaching for a long time, and finally it's beginning to penetrate on the national political scene, too. Okay. I, so I have to ask about this new conservative university. You're not talking about starting one of those in St. Louis. You mean a, a nationwide kind of a university where there would be campuses across the country and that would be a viable option for parents to send their kids to, a place where conservative professors could work and that type of thing? How, what does this well, look like? Well, if you really want to find a conservative college, there are several of them. There are places like Berea College and Christendom College and Grove City College and Hillsdale College, those places exist, and they are places where you can send your your children if you don't want them to get the full uh, liberal propaganda machine. You won't find them there. The place that I proposed would be a single campus, because the trouble with these multiple campuses, and I've been in a number of universities that have multiple campuses, they just have no focus, and they have no, and they have no impact. The, either there's one campus that's the real campus, and the other ones really are fake campuses with and too small and don't make any difference, or they spread themselves too thin. The proposal that I make, and I make a very spe- specific proposal, but it's one that certainly could be modified. Anyone who has the money to do it can found such a university and doesn't have to listen to me if he doesn't want to. I suggested one in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., since it would be near the center of political power and in a position to have real national influence, and that could that could attract conservative students and professors from all over the country. But I'd hope it would have national impact. It wouldn't just be a local university that would just draw from people from around Washington, because, of course, a whole lot of students including me when I was that age, are like your daughter, and they'd rather live away from home and and be independent. Mm. Well, I'm hoping that um, what we need is people who have those big dollars to take this idea on and band together and start something like this, because we need more Hillsdales. We need more, not less. I mean, we don't have them spread out around the country. We need a conservative university in the Midwest, a really strong one besides Wheaton. So... Um, thank you so much. Professor Warren Treadgold, professor at St. Louis University, Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars Fellowship, Wilbur Foundation Fellowship, an amazing career. Uh, thank you, sir, for coming on today. We'll be right back. Hi, guys. This is Lewis Walker from Newport News, Virginia. Uh, I'd just like to say that this has been a tremendous blessing in my life because it has reshaped and reformed the way that I lead my family in worship. It makes me think about world issues through a biblical lens, which I never even thought about growing up. And it's helped me keep my family more Christ-centered and oriented in order to share the gospel uh, accurately and more compassionately. Thank you so much for what you do. I pray that God will strengthen you and continue to provide the funds to be able to spread the gospel all over the place. Continue to challenge the evil one. Uh, we love you guys, and we hope to hear more of you. 
Pray for God's blessing on our upcoming share so that we can continue to make a difference. share begins tomorrow here on Urban Family Talk. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Research on religion and American life by the Barner Group shows that only 4% of professing Christians actually possess a Christian worldview. The Barner Group asks the following questions to determine whether or not a Christian worldview is present. Do absolute moral truths exist? Does the Bible define absolute truth? Did Jesus Christ live a sinful life? Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe and does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? The correct answer to all of these questions is yes. Do you agree? If not, you do not have a Christian worldview. Instead of going through the motions, let's use our lives to honor and serve God by living out a biblically sound Christian worldview in every avenue of our lives. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. The week ahead. President Trump is expected to visit the Florida Panhandle this week after it was ravaged by Hurricane Michael. The Category 4 storm was the strongest to hit the U.S. mainland in more than a quarter century. Tuesday is tip-off for the 2018-2019 NBA season. Teams playing games on back-to-back days is at an all-time low. Wednesday, recreational marijuana use in Canada becomes legal. Roughly 100 dispensaries across the country are expected to be open. Also Wednesday, British Prime Minister Theresa May joins EU leaders in Brussels to discuss Brexit. Officials hope to agree on a final withdrawal treaty with Britain. Friday, Bernie Sanders will be back on the political trail. The Vermont senator kicks off a nine-state tour to campaign for Democratic candidates in the midterm elections. Sanders ran for president in 2016 and is considered a possible contender in 2020. And that's a look at the week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to speak to uh, Professor Warren Treadgold. He's a professor of history at St. Louis University. I also wanted to give a little bit more information. He actually has a PhD from Harvard University, uh, and he has his bachelor's from Harvard University. He teaches the Byzantine Empire, medieval history to 1100, ancient Greece, ancient and medieval people, introduction to Byzantine history, the Byzantine historians, Byzantine Western relations, and late antiquity. Um, so really someone that, that I'm, I'm sure his, his students have a ton of fun in his classes learning about these subjects. And I just wish that um, we had more teachers like him who would have decades left in the field he says his field is the political, economic, military, social, and cultural history of the Byzantine Empire, years 285 to 1461. Fascinating man. Um, and I, it was such a pleasure to get to speak with him today. He makes a great point about starting and seeding these new universities. Um, and we got to be willing to do that. And so the best thing for us to do, the absolute best thing for us to do is for us to you know, spread the word. Any person who is, you know, of, of any kind of educational background that's in academia, they know how universities get started. And it's not, it's not about everybody being super wealthy. It's about saying, you know, some, some family that has acres, some family that has property, 
that instead of leaving that land to some already existing university would say, I'm leaving it to this, we're going to start a new university on this land. I'm leaving it to maybe Liberty University. And then Liberty would start another campus. Although it's interesting that Professor Treadgold said it's, he doesn't really think the multiple campuses works as well as having a standalone university that is really about its own business. But there's a way to get it done. The question is, which of us is going to take that on? Somebody has to. So um, now I want to turn to the Department of Justice and FBI corruption. So as you might have seen, the president was on a 60 Minutes interview over the weekend, and everybody over at Vox and everywhere else is all mad because they say that the interviewer didn't land any points. He, he was able to answer the questions. He looked good in every segment, as if to say, it's only a good interview if you make President Trump look bad. How about if you just interview him and let Americans make up their own mind about how he looked? So the reason they weren't able to land any punches on him is because President Trump is not guilty of collusion. Now, there may have been some decisions that were unwise made during the campaign by some of the campaign members. Um, there may have been some of the campaign surrogate staff volunteers who had things in their past that were iffy, that once they were involved with the campaign, made them targets for an investigation. But over at EpochTimes.com, they have a detailed infograph of all of the players who were involved in this. And this was nothing short of a political coup. The president at the time, President Obama, was bent in the most hellacious fashion on preventing a Trump presidency. And joining with him in that effort were huge swaths of the intelligence community, the leadership anyway, numerous agencies, the Hillary Clinton campaign and Fusion GPS and anyone in Washington, D.C. who didn't want to see this, quote unquote, swamp drained. The fact is, they actually didn't think that he was going to win. They thought he'd be a great foil and that Hillary Clinton would vanquish him. She would be the conqueror and she would literally drive a stake into Donald Trump and they'd never have to hear from him again or any of his family. Instead, not only did he win, but when he got to Washington, D.C., instead of having lunch with all the special interests and getting taken out to dinner by all the special interests, he was like, I've been to all the best lunch spots. I own the best golf courses. I own wineries and I own property all over the world. If I want something to look nice, I renovate it and then move into it and make it look nice. I make things nice for myself. I have the best vehicles. I have the best planes. I have the fanciest helicopter. Nothing you have to offer me will induce me to move away from my stated goal that this swamp needs to be drained because I'm going to leave this Washington, D.C., this city, this government better than I found it. And that's that is my dad's favorite slogan. It's the slogan of uh, one of the. So my dad's an army veteran. He was a military policeman. And I think it's either the military police or uh, one of the companies that he. And for, for years, that was their model. He had it on a cup, a coffee cup. Leave things better than you find them. It, it, it's, it's a way of living. You either believe in that or you don't. And, and that's for all the people who will push a cart out of the grocery store or the, the home goods and then put the front wheels of the cart up on the little grassy median and get in their car and drive away so that a hard wind can blow that cart off and it can go slamming into my minivan. Yeah, that's not leaving things better than you found them. Leaving things better than you found them is at the minimum, you put the cart into the cart return area. And if there isn't a cart return, you simply hit the lock button, walk yourself back over with that cart and put it back inside the front of the store and then go on about your business. Those are just simple, leave things better than you found them.
But if you want to really go up a notch, it's what Donald Trump is doing. And I know whenever I say this, you know, people who suffer from Trump derangement syndrome are all like, but he's he's he hates women. He hates black people. Donald Trump cheated on his wife. Yep. So he's a failed person. Just like you, just like me. We all have something. You uh, Please, while you're suffering from Trump derangement syndrome, don't get too into yourself to the point where you think you don't have anything that you need to be repenting for or that you haven't worked on. My favorite is people who are themselves divorced, who are whining about Donald Trump being divorced. I'm like, but aren't you divorced? I mean, just a second. I just went, did, did you, I, haven't you been divorced? I mean, I'm not, I don't care. I just, are you, are you judging him for being divorced when you're divorced? Because are you judging him for using profanity? Because I heard you say, you know, it's, it's, of course we all have standards, but I mean, come on. So if, if the problem really is Trump, the person, that means he can never do anything that would please you except to go away. And so that means you're not really in the conversation. That means the rest of us can just talk about it. The rest of us can just go on, you know, dealing with the issues as they as they stand, which is, you know, the guy's getting a lot done. I mean, he's getting a lot done. The list of accomplishments that he so the White House sent out a list. And it was pretty awesome. And then other people have running lists that they maintain where if you want to know what the president's been up to, you know, you can uh, you, you can check out their list and, and see. And I gave one of them on the air once. And that was the first time it was when, when we first started doing the show on um, uh, American Family Radio, the first hour. And I had so many people reach out and say, where can I find that list? And I, I had it emailed to me. Um, and it was one of the White House lists. And, and so I just was able to email the emailed list to people. But I mean, I, I didn't have a, a source for it like a blog because it was just a compilation of different news stories they were all news story headlines the fact is we've 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 got a situation where corruption and is running amok in washington dc and like the professor pointed out if this were on the other foot if the shoe were on the other foot and republicans had literally stood up a multi-pronged operation spanning all of the intelligence agencies to stop a democrat from being inaugurated or later after he was inaugurated to work to get him out. Oh my goodness. The news media would never let that go. They'd say the Republicans are all corrupt. If you're a Republican, you're corrupt too. Just, just the way they've said about Donald Trump, he's a racist and anyone who supports him is a racist. Even if you're black, even if you're Hispanic, even if you're Asian, you're a racist because you support Donald Trump. He's a racist. We got to run you out of public. Do you see the double standard there? How can you support it? How, how can you support people who literally say, if you voted for someone, you're guilty of whatever they're guilty of, but they have no proof that the person that they're targeting is guilty of anything. So Mueller is rounding up. He's winding this investigation down. He's willing to take a paper interrogatory from President Trump. So President Trump will be answering questions from uh, Mueller via paper. In other words, he's going to write out his answers or type out his answers and, and turn those in. He's not going to be interviewed in person. And you've also got Rod Rosenstein, who just between you, me and the, the microphone, I believe Rosenstein's time will be up working for the Trump administration within that first week after the midterm elections. He's gone. 
But for now, he's staying there on borrowed time because it's not politically expedient. It does it all it would be is a huge distraction. It would cause whales and all kinds of stuff from the left if he were to be let go now. But any person who says, yeah, I'll wear a wire, I'll record him. The 25th Amendment is the way we can get rid of him. That's not an employee you're keeping. But after what we saw with James Comey and the damage that caused, you know, it, it's wiser to keep him around. So you've got Jim Jordan here, and he's talking about how Rod Rosenstein, who was subpoenaed to testify in, in Congress, he didn't show up. Actually, they requested his presence. They issued a request for him to show up and testify about what he said about the 25th Amendment. He refused to show up, and now they've subpoenaed him. Jim Jordan talking here is number five. Look, when you're the guy who in reality is running the Justice Department and the chairman of the committee that has jurisdiction over your agency asks you to come, you are obligated to come and you are obligated to come and testify under oath. He didn't do that. So if it takes a subpoena, that's exactly what should happen. We need him to answer questions about all kinds of issues associated with the Trump-Russia investigation, but specifically the, the statement that's it's alleged that he said where he talked about actually recording the commander-in-chief of our great country, and he talked about the 25th Amendment. That's specifically what I want to ask him about. And he's going to have to answer those questions. Now, perhaps, if we can extrapolate here, he's been on Air Force One. He met with President Trump. Um, they kept it very low-key. The president didn't make a whole lot of statements about it other than we've, we've met, we've chatted, and everything's fine. It occurred to me when I saw that statement being made that, you know, when they were talking by themselves, one of, one of the things that was put out right before they met was that Rod Rosenstein said he was willing to resign as long as the president didn't publicly humiliate him. So he would go quietly into that good night, but he was asking not to be publicly humiliated by President Trump. Now, perhaps they came to an understanding. You just go about doing your job and keep your nose clean I don't say anything about you. I keep my mouth shut about you. And then after the election, we readdress this issue and we'll talk. Maybe they sat down and talked and Rosenstein said, you know, I was being sarcastic because of the tone of the meetings and everybody else who was in the meetings that was having this discussion, they've all been neutralized. They're no longer a part of government. So, you know, that that's your answer when just as an aside, people are saying to you, I heard someone on the radio, uh, it was a mainstream news outlet and, and, the news person was saying, out of the Trump campaign world, 30 people have been indicted or have you know, been issued sentences or have pled guilty or something like that. Well, out of that 30 people, like more than half of those 30 people, over 20 of those people are Russians who will never be prosecuted. And then the rest of them, not one of them has been prosecuted and convicted on collusion or trying to influence the election. They're all being prosecuted for crimes that they committed before they worked for Donald Trump, either as a surrogate or in a you know, capacity. And even Mike Flynn, General Flynn, who's been convicted of lying to FBI, no collusion, just lying to the FBI. But they've not sentenced him. Mueller keeps pushing the sentencing off. That was a witch hunt. That was a witch hunt. They did not want General Flynn working for President Trump. They didn't want him in that role. They didn't want him. They didn't want to have to come under his command and authority. They didn't want that man around. He was a danger to them and they had to neutralize him. So, look, I don't I have no problem with investigations, but I do have a problem with corruption. And it just. 
it drives me nuts. So thinking about the people that we have in our armed forces all over the world, risking their lives, some of them on their third and fourth deployment, supporting and defending the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you have a body band of ne'er-do-wells in federal government who are literally flying their finger in the, in the sacrifice of those people. And why am I connecting those two things together? Because military people are paid through our tax dollars, but they also pay taxes. And the government that they're at going out doing whatever they're doing, the, the orders that they're under, those come from the commander in chief. But if you don't think that our FBI and our CIA and those agencies, they don't play a role in how we operate around the globe and what the things our military is involved in, especially our special forces and our special operators, those guys dovetail in with, with our investigatory agencies. Of course they do. This is a travesty of the highest order. And people must be prosecuted for the wrongdoing that has gone on. When we allow people to do wrong and we know about it and we don't prosecute them, it encourages others who are waiting in the wings, people who might never have put their toe into the dirty swamp. They got their whole ankle in there and they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going in. Got my waiters on. I'm going to go get me some of that corruption because it's lucrative. These people must be prosecuted and brought to justice. For you, for me, for every taxpayer, for every baby in the crib, for every man, woman, and transgender popping that salute every time an officer walks by, those enlisted members, those sailors, those soldiers, those ground troops, those AWACS individuals, everybody who's serving. For them and for you and me, these people must be brought to justice. I'll be back with you tomorrow with more Stacy on the Right. God bless from the heartland. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.